How would you describe a trek to the age-old cities of the Incas in the mountains of Peru? Emerald forests and these coffee-colored peaks and these exotic birds, it really is a remarkable, remarkable journey. I'm Rick Steves, and coming up in the hour ahead, prepare to walk the Inca Trail from Cuzco to Machu Picchu. And it's easy to stumble upon ancient civilizations almost anywhere you walk in Turkey. Istanbul is home to some of the world's grandest buildings, including a palace that just about bankrupted the Ottoman Empire. It's spectacular. Baccarat crystal staircases, largest crystal chandeliers of the world, biggest hand-woven carpets of the world. And even the ruins of great castles in Wales can tell you plenty about the past. These are cultured people. They are wealthy people. And any idea that you have, they sit around wrapped up in animal skins, grunting and throwing bones over their shoulders. (laughs) Forget it. Explore the legacy of the Incas, the Ottomans, and medieval Wales. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. One of the thrills of travel is being able to connect with the history of ancient civilizations, even getting cozy with stones that were carved hundreds, maybe even thousands of years ago. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're following the Inca Trail in the Andes of Peru. We'll also admire the accomplishments of the Ottoman Empire in Turkey and learn some of the bright points of the Dark Ages from the many castles and evocative ruins you can visit in Wales. Machu Picchu is one of the most famous ancient sites in the world, and for good reason. Tucked away in the Andes Mountains, the magnificent Incan city of Machu Picchu, it's a classic adventurous destination. Its remote location means that it survived the centuries amazingly intact. It takes three days to hike there through a cloud forest in the Inca Trail, and it's become very popular, and it's actually starting to put the ancient site at risk. So there's a lot of interesting issues here, and we're going to talk about Machu Picchu with the author of the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Peru, Carolina Miranda. Carolina, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So let's just set the context here. If you were a Spanish conquistador and you stumbled onto the Inca people in the 1500s, what would you see? Well, I think you would see one of the most remarkable civilizations in the world. By the time the Spanish arrived in the 1520s, the Incas had conquered pretty much almost the entire Andes from Colombia down to the middle of Chile. They managed cities all over the Andes and the coast, and they had more roadways than the Roman Empire at its apex. So this was a highly developed civilization with a great deal of technological know-how, They would terrace mountains for agriculture. They built roads. They had uh, fantastic textiles. And so you're really looking at one of the great civilizations in the world. And what happened when the Spanish came? How did that impact the Inca civilization? Well, what had happened when the Spanish arrived is the Incas had actually just been in a fairly brutal civil war. There had been two leaders, uh, Atahualpa and Huascar, who had had a bit of a struggle for power. And as a result, there had been a war throughout the empire when Pizarro showed up with his uh, roughly 200 men. So the country was in a bit of a state of division. The, The empire was fractured, and that's how the Spanish were able to get in and sort of align themselves with one side and take Atahualpa prisoner and eventually basically subdue the Inca empire. So 200 conquistadors really spelled the end of the Incans. 200 conquistadors uh, subdued an empire that some experts estimate at its height had 10 million people. From a practical point of view, to experience the, the ultimate of what's left of Incan civilization, I understand you use Cusco as sort of a, a hub, and then you hike the Incan Trail and you get to Machu Picchu. Tell us about Cusco. Cusco was the ancient capital of the Inca Empire. Of all the settlements the Incas left all over the Andes, it is the settlement that is perhaps the most preserved. So you walk through downtown Cusco and you're walking through alleyways that were built by the Incas. They might have Spanish roofs and adobe walls on top, but the bases of these buildings are inherently Inca. 
And so you really get a sense of what this must have been like in the 1500s when the Incas were running the place. And it's a very remarkable architecture. On top of that, the Incas were amazing engineers and could build these monumental structures without mortar. They would basically fit bricks one against the other so tightly that that they would survive earthquakes and and you can't even slip a credit card in between two rocks. So the city is really, when you land there, you feel like you've arrived in an imperial city and it's tucked into this little cradle in the Andes. You fly in and and you're literally like in this bowl and, and Cusco actually means the belly button of the world. You're kind of entering this little... Uh, nook in the Andes. And that was their base. So for a lot of visitors, that's how they access uh, Machu Picchu. And it's a great introduction uh, to the empire and to the history. And then from there, they continue on to the Sacred Valley and Machu Picchu, either by hiking the Inca Trail, or uh, you can take a train all the way to the village of Aguascalientes and from there visit the ruins. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Carolina Miranda. She's the lead author of the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Peru. Okay, let's talk about the Inca Trail. The Inca Trail is actually a trail that that is pre-Columbian, and it survives to this day. Yes. In fact, the, the Incas had roadways all over the empire, and this was one roadway that has become particularly famous because it leads directly to the ruins at Machu Picchu. And Machu Picchu is... It's such a special destination because the Spanish never found it. It's on the top of this cloud forest peak. By the time the Spanish had arrived, it looks like it was probably covered in vegetation. So for several centuries, it kind of lay under this wrap of trees. And this roadway, it kind of ascends and descends through these cloud forest peaks through a series of small Inca ruins and watch points and settlements and villages before landing at the big dog, which is Machu Picchu. You you come over the ridge of the mountain and you see basically the entire city at your feet. And it's a 43-kilometer hike. 26 miles or something like that. Yeah. yeah, it's about 26 miles, which doesn't sound like a lot when you look at it on paper, but you're going up and down mountains. And so it generally takes three to four days with altitudes of as high as 14,000 feet. So you have to be in good shape. So paint a picture here, Carolina. You're, you're halfway through this hike. You're dreaming about Machu Picchu. You're up at 12,000 feet above sea level. You're walking on a trail that was laid. The stones were laid centuries before uh, the arrival of the Spanish conquistadors. What's it like? What do you feel? What do you hear? Well, it's remarkable because I guess it's the things you don't hear. You don't hear traffic. You don't hear cell phones. Uh, you don't hear the buzz of radios. What you hear are the sounds of your own footsteps, the birds cackling in the cloud forest. It is a pilgrimage, and I think that's why it's such a popular hike. You are seeing a part of Peru as it has remained for hundreds of years. You know, you're not going to see any cars on the Inca Trail. This is exclusively a pedestrian experience. The government is effectively uh, preserving this and protecting it from development? Yes, yes. And in fact, in recent years, the government has really cracked down because when I first went to this area of Peru in the 1990s, you could take two weeks to hike the Inca Trail if you wanted to. You could go by yourself, you could camp, you could stay at some of the sites for days. It was entirely unregulated. And at the time, there was very little tourism to Peru, so it, it almost didn't matter. But these days, Peru gets more than two million foreign visitors a year, and they all go to see Machu Picchu. So it's it's become issues of littering and overuse of the trail have become an issue. So several years ago, for example, the government started shutting the trail down in February, which is the rainiest month to do trail maintenance and just basically to allow the vegetation around the area an opportunity to recover from all the visitors that go through. Two million a year. So roughly two million see Machu Picchu the um, classic way is to hike the Inca Trail. People who are not as hardy can take the train to a closer town. And how demanding is it physically for the easiest route? For the easiest route, if you take the train to the village and then go up to the mountain, I mean, I've seen, you know, all the way from three-year-old kids to grandparents do that. Machu Picchu itself lies at about 8,000 feet above sea level. So it's actually at a lower altitude than Cusco. So most people find it fairly easy to do day hikes um, around the ruin site. It's hiking the trail in that three to four day trip that requires much more physical sturdiness. 
What I would recommend is not going in July or August when it's at its peak and the trail is at the most crowded. While there are daily limits on the number of people that can go on the trail, it usually reaches its daily limit and you're there, you know, it's you on the trail with 250 other people, 300 other people. So it's it's not that pleasant. I think September and October or perhaps April, if you don't mind maybe being caught in a rainstorm, you're going to mm-hmm. get a lot more peace and quiet and you're really going to be able to digest this magnificent experience. You know, these emerald forests and these coffee-colored peaks and these exotic birds. It really is a remarkable, remarkable journey. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Carolina Miranda of the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Peru. So, Carolina, you've been hiking on the Inca Trail and you're descending into Machu Picchu. What do you see? This is one of the Inca's most remarkable settlements. It's an entire citadel capping the top of a cloud forest peak. By an entire citadel, I mean a miniature city. There's agricultural terraces where they grew their food, there's ceremonial buildings, there's public gathering areas, there's areas where the Inca nobility would have stayed. What makes it remarkable is two things. Is One, the architecture is just amazing. And because the Spanish never got their hands on it, it means that all of the stones that are there stayed there. They weren't used to build churches. They weren't used to build the Viceroy's house. And it's also the setting. You are at the top of this unbelievable mountain, surrounded by mountains all around you, and the rush of the Urubamba River below you. It really is like entering this other universe. Why did they build Machu Picchu? You know, there's a lot of conjecture about why Machu Picchu was built. Because the Incas didn't leave behind a written language and because the Spanish weren't aware that the city existed, there's a lot of mystery. People tend to think it was some sort of royal retreat because of the type of architecture that's there. It's the imperial style of architecture. It's the type of architecture the leaders would have built for themselves. It also happens to lie at a key geographic juncture with the Amazon on one side and the Andes on the other. So it could have been part of an important trade route. Mm. So there's a lot of conjecture, but no 100 percent sure answers. And as an expert on uh, Machu Picchu, how would you recommend best experiencing the majesty of the site? I think my favorite time at Machu Picchu is first thing in the morning when the site first opens. They usually open the gates, I believe it's at 6.30 in the morning. And if you get in there at that time, there's a certain quiet. The area is still cloudy. You can hike around before the afternoon trains uh, full of tourists from Cusco roll in and just get this real sense of peace. And by 9 a.m., the clouds start to lift. And if you position yourself up on a higher point on one of the terraces or you're able to climb the cone-shaped mountain to the side called Huayna Picchu, you can be in this point where you literally just watch all of these clouds lift and the city just reveal itself below you. It is, it's a holy experience. Just very quickly, I understand there's new restrictions on visiting Machu Picchu and getting tickets and so on. What's the latest on that? Yes. Uh, the site ended up on the World Monuments Fund most endangered list because it was being loved to death, basically. And so the government has put very strict limits. So there's 2,500 people allowed a day at the ruined site. The tickets have to be purchased in advance. And I recommend to people buy them while you're in Cusco or from a travel agent in advance of your trip because you don't want to make that journey all the way there and then discover that you can't get into Machu Picchu. So if you got a ticket, you got an appointment, there's no doubt you're going to have a magical experience. Absolutely. Carolina Miranda, one of the authors of The Lonely Planet Guidebook to Peru, thank you so much. Thank you. The Ottoman Empire fell just over 90 years ago. So there's still plenty of impressive evidence of their opulence that you can see today in Turkey. A look at touring Ottoman sites in Turkey is coming up next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you learn a new language on your smartphone. Rosetta Stone uses images and games to teach instead of rote memorization. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. When your home's right in the middle of a region that's said to be the cradle of civilization, it's easy to imagine the ghosts of any number of ancient societies all around. That's what it's like to walk almost anywhere in Turkey. 
from Hittites and Assyrians to Lydians and Byzantine Greeks and Romans, today's Republic of Turkey is built atop some impressive powerhouses of the distant past. Until it was replaced by the Turkish Republic in 1922, the Ottoman Empire ruled supreme. They ruled from their capital at Istanbul, where you can still witness impressive reminders of that city's imperial past. To help us get in touch with the empire the Ottomans left behind, Istanbul-based tour guide Lali Sermanaran joins us right now with tips for touring Ottoman Turkey. Lali, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Rick, and merhaba. Merhaba. Merhaba, Lali. Tell us the Ottoman state, basically. When did it start? When did it finish? What was it? The Ottoman history gets us back to the 13th century AD. Towards the end of the Ottoman century, the Ottoman dynasty formed, and they struggled with other Turkish dynasties trying to set a sure foot on Asia Minor, and finally they became the leader of those Turkish dynasties, unifying them under their flag, hence founded the Ottoman state, which turned into the Ottoman Empire, which was one of the major powers of the world in the 16th century A.D., continued till the 19th century A.D. Decline started in the 18th century, continued into the 19th century. Finally, by the World War I, it collapsed. Okay, so basically it started around 1300, and it was a a, a tribe of fierce, strong warrior-type Muslim people that came in. From Central Asia. From Central Asia. They took over Constantinople, which was the capital of the Byzantine Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire, established their state from there. It peaked in the 1600s and lasted until the 20th century, falling with a lot of uh, dynasties after World War I. Yes, we're talking about a history of 600 years. So much of what you see when you go to Istanbul today would be from the Ottoman period. Monuments. Monuments, Huge monuments from the Ottoman period. Who's the major figure of the Ottoman period? If there's one guy we've got to understand, and and what would we see in Istanbul to reflect uh, his rule? I guess that would be Suleiman the Magnificent. You call it the Suleiman the Magnificent. We call it Suleiman the Lawgiver, since he established an Ottoman codex for law, trying to be as fair as possible to every subject living under his flag. Now, when did he rule, and what physical souvenirs of his reign did he leave us today? He reigned for 46 years in 1500s. 1500s, okay. Yes, and during his reign, the imperial architect was a brilliant, brilliant man, architect Sinan, whom we see as a counterpart for Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo. Both of these men, Suleiman the Magnificent and Sinan, have a stamp on the Turkish Ottoman Renaissance. Now, that's interesting because we got... uh, Francois Premier, we got Henry VIII, we got the Medici, we got Michelangelo. All of the same age. All the class of... 16th century was an awesome age. This is the class of 1500, and a lot of times we forget that Suleiman the Magnificent was part of that with his Michelangelo or Leonardo. Brilliant architect. S-I-N-O-N. Now, as a Westerner, when I go to Istanbul, I'm just so... I'm thrilled to go into the mosques, but I don't have a very good ability to appreciate fine mosque architecture from just mosque architecture. When you step into a mosque by Sinon, the Leonardo of mm-hmm. Muslim architects, what do you see? What distinguishes the great mosque of Suleiman the Magnificent designed by Sinon from more forgettable mosques? To start with, I can say, I, I can summarize it with one word, grandeur. He was able to build huge domes without pillars supporting. He hid the pillars in the walls. Okay. So the domes looked like as if they were floating on air. Hmm. Now, how did he do that? Hiding the pillars in the side walls. Okay, so these, that would be and you he, step in and you just overcome by the wonder of it. Yes, and he didn't invent it. He inherited it from the previous Byzantine Empire that occupied Istanbul. Because Hagia Sophia, which was the biggest dome in the Western world for centuries, yes. preceded Suleiman yes. by, by many Hagia centuries. Hagia Sophia, or Hagia Sophia, was uh, the sample in front of Sinan. Now, that dates 800 years before Sinan or something like this, doesn't it? Uh, about a thousand years. It's easy to under underestimate the importance of Istanbul. I mean, for I always like to think that for 400 years, Istanbul was the leading city in Christendom. Europeans, even though they had no direct contact, they looked to Constantinople as the sort of the the Oz of their civilization. Mm -hmm. 
And for another 400 years under the Ottoman rule, it was the leading city of the Islam world. There's not many cities that can make this yes, claim. Yes. We're talking about Istanbul. We're talking about Ottoman Turkey. We're joined by Lali Sermon Aran, who comes from Constantinople or Istanbul, as we say now. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Eric's on the phone in Algonquin, Illinois. Eric, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. I'll be returning to Istanbul in a few weeks, but this will be the first trip there for my wife and 10-year-old daughter. I was wondering if you'd give me some advice on some things that could really make the Ottoman experience come alive for a child. 10 years old. So ten bringing years a 10-year-old daughter to Istanbul, what would be a fun thing to enliven her experience and gain an appreciation of the Ottoman? I suppose she would be most thrilled with sites that are more visually awarding. And I can count the Dolmabahce Palace, the Ottoman Palace along the Bosphorus, the Mosque of Suleiman the Magnificent, the Blue Mosque. And if you ever have a chance to go to the aqueducts that were built by Sinan, Suleiman the Magnificent's architect in the 16th century, that might also be an interesting place for her to see. Describe the aqueducts. In the 16th century, they renewed all of the water system of the capital city, which was falling apart. People needed water for a survival. So Suleiman the Magnificent asked Sinan to rebuild it from the very beginning. Sinan built mighty aqueducts from the forests surrounding the city, channeling the water into the fountains, the monumental fountains that are in the city. And some are intact, and they can be seen in day trips out of Istanbul. Eric, have you traveled with your daughter to countries like Turkey before? No, this will be your first trip overseas. Boy, you're diving right into the intensity of it all by going to Turkey. Yeah, well, we're looking forward to it very much. And your daughter might very much enjoy the performance of the military army band. Okay. Where would that be? That's made in the military museum daily around 3 p.m. You just need to get a ticket. There is no separate admission for the band, and you, anybody can watch it. Eric, uh, Lali mentioned the Domabachi Palace. This really is, uh, you know, people like to go to the Schönbrunn Palace in Vienna or Versailles in Paris or the Royal Palace in Madrid. This is right up there with those palaces, and uh, it's often overlooked by tourists because it's up the Bosporus a little ways. And do you still need to make an appointment to go there, or can you just drop in? It's suggested that they make an appointment, and it's easy to do through the website of the palace. You can do it ahead of time. Describe the palace to us just briefly. What, what century is it from? It's a 19th century palace, uh-huh. and it's heavily under the European influence, European architecture. But the Ottomans, during their decline, wanted to show off the world they still have the money, they still have the might, they still have the power that their ancestors had, therefore channeled everything that they had in their power for the construction of this palace. It's spectacular. Baccarat crystal staircases, largest crystal chandeliers of the world, biggest hand-woven carpets of the world, and you can all see them in the palace. The palace is kept with the original furniture. So this is a palace that was actually built during the decline of the Ottomans, and then yes. to sort of prove that they're not on the decline, yes. it was over-the-top sort of It was a, a show-off. How do you spell Domabachi? D-O-L-M-A-B-A-H-C-E. Okay, Dolmabachi. It is the big palace, uh, Eric, in, in Istanbul, and it's just a bit away from the center, actually facing... You can see it from the cruises up and down the Bosporus. Yes, and it's facing Asia. It's located on Europe facing Asia. Now, Eric has a chance to take his daughter to the Blue Mosque. Tell us about the experience of going into the Blue Mosque. Are all the tourists welcome? Uh, what sensitivities should we have when we visit the Blue Mosque? That's a good question, Rick. Thank you. Uh, everybody is welcome in the mosque, so as the Blue Mosque. The only times they'll not let you in are the set times of the prayer, which are five times a day. Those times are only reserved for the worshippers. Other than that, you can go in at any time. Uh, Men and women both are expected to cover their shoulders and knees, and women are expected to cover the hair. This does not have to be in a conventional way that a Muslim woman does. It's the sign of respect. Even a baseball cap would do it. And there's scarves right there that people can grab on the way in. Yes, I recommend you to bring your own scarf. I mean, don't wear something that hundreds of other people are wearing. Yes, but they're available handy. And regardless of the sex and the age, everybody takes shoes off, remove shoes going into a mosque. Eric, I hope that's helpful. Uh, Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for your call, and good luck uh, exposing your your, uh, young student to the wonders of our world. Thank you. George is on the line in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Hi, George. Thanks for your call. Hey there, Rick, and uh, marhaba, Marhaba, Marhaba. 
I have a comment, actually, because I'm a uh, ceramic artist that specializes in tile and mosaic. And I spent a week with my wife uh, in Istanbul in August visiting a good friend of ours who is, is a native there. Her name is Serpil. And we saw so much wonderful tile, as well as some mosaic in Istanbul. And it was a thrill for me, both uh, personally as well as professionally, to see uh, this wonderful tile that was actually, I think, mostly created in the uh, uh, Turkish city of Iznik. Iznik, right? Yes. Famous for its tiles. Now, George, as a ceramic artist yourself, were you struck by the fact that there were no images on the tiles, but just uh, design? Yeah, that's generally true, although not always true. There's, mm-hmm. uh, there's a wonderful tile pavilion at the uh, Archaeological Museum, and some of the tile does have some faces on it. Okay. And, uh, I'm not quite sure yes. why or yes. what the difference is. But generally in Muslim art, you would not have... You know, like I was struck by when you go into the Hagia Sophia, in a Christian church, you would have a big statue of St. Peter and another big statue of um, the Virgin Mary, and in a mosque, you'd have a big banner with a artistically designed lettering that says Allah or Muhammad, but not the images of those people. That's right, but the mosques are great places to see, you know, these oh, whole yeah. walls of tile just uh, and pattern on pattern. Uh, it's uh, really a thrilling experience. So you would recommend the city of Iznik, I-Z-N-I-K, for people who really want to see this, this tile art form? I think that the tile is still being made there. Hey, George, we're just running out of time, and, and I'd love while you're on the phone to get Lolly's take on, because she shook her head no when I said Iznik for tiles. Lolly, if you're looking for some sightseeing must-sees, what would you have in a list of four or five Ottoman sites or cities or, or places to appreciate? In the, means of tiles. No, in, in means of Ottoman culture and art. Istanbul, Bursa, and Edirne. The period. three big cities. Yes. The, the capitals of the yes. Ottoman. Yes, yes. Istanbul... Bursa, B-U-R-S-A, and Edirne, E-D-I-R-N-E, in Thrace, which would be the European part of Turkey. Yes, bordering Bulgaria. Before the Ottomans conquered Constantinople, they had capital cities. One capital city for Asian provinces, one capital city for the European provinces. After the conquest of Istanbul, they were combined in one capital city, Constantinople or Istanbul. Wow. George, thanks for your call. Oh, thanks, Rick, and thanks, Lowry. Thank happy, you. Happy travels. Thanks. Lolly, explain Iznik is a famous word for people appreciating uh, Ottoman tiles, but is it famous because you go there to see the tiles, or that's where the tiles came from and you see them in palaces in Bursa? Or Neither Istanbul? nor. Okay, what's the story Neither of Iznik? Uh, to start with, I can say that Iznik is biblical Nicaea, where the Nicene Creed was signed okay. or discussed over. In the height of the Ottoman period, it became the manufacturing center for the Iznik tiles that were commissioned by the Ottoman dynasty. But in the 18th century, the tile industry there declined and came to a total end. Afterwards, different centers carried on the traditions of the Iznik tiles, but none could come to the quality of what was produced in Iznik because it was a profession or a task that a master taught an apprentice. That chain came to an end. So bottom line, if you want to see the greatest Iznik-style tiles... You, you do it in Istanbul. Istanbul. And I would imagine that would be in the Topkapi Palace would be a good place. The best I would list as the Rustem Pasha's Mosque along the Golden Horn. Huh, okay. Then comes the Blue Mosque and the Topkapi Palace. Let's talk about the Topkapi Palace. We talked about the Domebaci Palace, but that's 19th century, and that's more modern mm-hmm. and more European style. Mm-hmm. But when you go to the Top Copy Palace, that you feel like you're going into another world. How can we best appreciate the Top Copy Palace? What I can say is that Dolma Bahçe Palace is an eclectic palace with Turkish elements and European architectural elements. Top Copy Palace is an Ottoman palace. What makes it stand out so differently is that Ottomans or Turks previously, before they established themselves in Asia Minor, They were nomads living in Central Asia. They lived in tents, and the tents were organized around the tent of the chieftain. And when you go to the Topkapu Palace, it's a concrete structure, but it's a concrete tent. You see buildings organized around courtyards as if they are tents circling a central location. So there are courtyards, and around them there are the buildings. The same thing. Nothing has changed, but only the material. And life in the Topkapı Palace, when you talk about a palace, people always imagine fancy furniture, fancy silverware, flatware, chandeliers. 
there are none in the top couple palace because that's not how you live in a tent. You would live on the ground, spreading good, well-made carpets, and you would sit on the divans. Once upon a time, the divans in the tents were the mattresses that were folded up during the day that were tucked to the sides of the tents. But in the top couple palace, well, okay, they built the divans to sit in the corners of the room, but the palace is a concrete tent. You just straightened it all out for me because when I go to the Domobachi Palace, it feels like a European king could live here. When I go to the Top Copy Palace, I feel some royal nomad just parked his camel and he spread his uh, low-lying sofas around these divans and they're just gathered as they would in a tent. That's what it feels like, exactly. And the other thing fascinating about the Top Copy Palace is that it was not only the residence of the dynasty, the, the Ottoman family members, but it was the seat of the government. It was the capital hill. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been imagining the wonders of Ottoman Turkey, which was for six or seven centuries really a a dramatic empire. It was a grand empire. It's capital in Constantinople, present-day Istanbul. And Lali Sermon Aran has been our tour guide. Lali, give us one little last stop where we can feel really the magnificence of the Ottoman age. Where would we go and what would we look at? Go to the Golden Horn, walk over to the Galata Bridge, turn to the old town, and immerse the view That's and it. the Bosphorus. So the Golden Horn is this beautiful bay that, that splits Istanbul in two halves on the European side. Cross the bridge towards the European side, look back, and you'll see this skyline just sparkling with the wonders. That is my favorite view. Of the Ottoman and Empire. the Bosphorus is part of it. Oh, it's just great. Lolly, thank you so much for this peek at Istanbul my and pleasure. the Ottoman Empire. Thank you. And Lolly, um, if I want to say see you later, how do I say that? Sonra görüşürüz. See you later. Sonra görüşürüz. Sonra görüşürüz. Teşekkür ederim. Tell us what the stones and scenery say to you in your travels in the form of a haiku poem. There's a link to send us your travel haiku in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Here's what the cobblestones in Northern Ireland had to say to one of our listeners. Carrie Dexter from Tallahassee, Florida, noticed how the stones she walked on in Ulster were witnesses to a lot of history. She tells us about it in this haiku. Streets of Derry, stones remember ancient dreams and recent troubles. J. Bruce Payette was a recent caller on the show, telling us what it's been like to live aboard his sailboat for the past 25 years. While docked at Isla Morada in the Florida Keys, he emailed us this poetic observation from his travels. All around the world, Little children are the same. Boys tease, girls giggle. And Erin Sutter writes that she's just moved to Rick's hometown of Edmonds, Washington. She must have been downtown when Rick made his usual stroll for a quick takeout from his favorite coffee shop. Edmonds resident. Brand new, but feel I'm at home. I saw Rick today. Next, we'll hear what the Castle Stones of Wales have to teach us. 877-333-7425. That's our phone number. Or post your comments and travel reports to the web board. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Remnants of major castles lie around nearly every bend when you're touring North Wales. But how do you make sense of it all today? Martin Delandovitz is a proud Welshman. And he's here now to clue us into deciphering what the stones of Welsh castles have to say to us about his country's distant past. Martin, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rick. How many castles would you guess there are in Wales? Um, Stone-built ones, uh, there are well over 100. Well over 100. Yeah. And why are there so many castles in Wales? Uh, Because Wales is pretty small. It's very small. I mean, if you stretch your tape one way, it's about (laughs) 130 miles. If you stretch it the other way, it's about 130 miles as a crow flies. But two things. Wales was basically invaded by Normans. You know, William the Conqueror comes in 1066. Now, it's the Normans that bring the habit of castle building with them. The first Welsh castle built by a Welsh prince recorded was built 50 years after the Norman Conquest. The thing about that means that the Welsh are going to build castles to defend and, of course, express their, their wealth and their power. And the Normans are going to build castles as they attack. So there are two sets of castles. So when you look at Wales, you've got the English castles built to keep the Welsh down. Yes. And the Welsh castles built to keep the English out. That's right. And, you know, you have to say Normans as much as you say English because the, the good bits of Wales, now the good bits, I'm talking the good bits uh, in farming terms, the south coast uh-huh. and the northern strip along the coast, 
they were conquered by Normans very early. They wanted those. Now, places like Gwynedd, where I come from. The north. Yeah, mountains, rain. Ugh. They didn't want it. <laughs> I mean, nobody wanted but it. But King Edward, the English King Edward, spent a lot of money to build Absolutely. the most expensive castles, I, I would imagine, in all of Europe, in that bleak north of Wales. That, that's very true. And two wars were fought, the first one in 77, the second one in 82, 1277. Yes. So these castles go back to the 13th century. Oh, yes, yes. Edward, the whole income from all the royal lands in Wales at that time was between thirty and 32,000 a year. Carnarvon Castle in itself cost that. You know, so just to build that one castle, England was spending more money than it pillaged from all of Wales by owning it. Carnarvon Castle cost 90% of the average annual income of Edward I. All the castles cost Edward I seven and a half years of his income. He's bankrupt 14 years later. These are staggering figures. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're trying to get our brains around these incredible castles that, that decorate. I was going to say litter, litter the countryside, but they decorate the countryside when you're traveling through Wales, reminding ourselves that for many centuries, this is a hard-fought corner of Britain. And today, when we go to Wales, we can check out these castles. We're joined by Martin Delandovitz. Uh, I met Martin first when you were a tour guide at Carnarvon Castle. That's right, most, uh, yes. Probably the most visited castle, I would imagine, in all of Wales. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Jeff's on the phone in Brunswick, Georgia. Jeff, Hello. how are you doing, Jeff? Fine, thank you. Got a question about castles? Yes, I've always been fascinated by castles, especially the ruins, and I'm always amazed to ask myself, how are these castles ever built without the modern hmm. you know, conveniences of bulldozers and cranes and I'm hopefully to visit someday soon. I was wondering, am I ability to research a castle locally, find local information, and maybe tell me how these castles were built, who built them, where did the raw materials come from? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you this, that the guidebooks now, the government department, uh, CADW, C-A-D-W, that looks after castles in Wales, each guidebook to each castle, they're small, they're light, they're pocket versions, and they're the best text you can get. Basically, with any castle, your ideal is this, the rock you are standing on is what you build your castle of, therefore you don't have to carry it far. Then what you do is you have exactly the same things that you'd have today. You have cranes, you have ladders, you have pulleys, you have hoists, mm. but the difference is it's not electricity, it's not hydraulics, it's all muscle power. So it's people in hamster wheels. Uh, it's people, it's donkeys. One of the things that we forget about, of course, is, is that transportation in days gone by isn't as easy as it is today. And stone is pretty heavy, you know. And so you don't want to drag it all over the world. And so in answer to your question, if you took somebody from a construction site in 1900 and put them on a construction site in 1300, they could work it perfectly. Because it's only since, let's say, since the development of hydraulics, electricity, and all the rest of it, okay. that construction has changed. But it's, it's In other words, they were pretty good in the 1300s, oh, building yeah. these castles. And Jeff, I was just touring three or four castles in Wales uh, last season, and... I'll tell you, Martin is right about those books. You may search now for the information, but when you get there, there's wonderful books, and you'll want to buy that book and give yourself a little extra time. Frankly, I have a tough time reading about it before I get there. But when you're sitting there in that castle, that's where you can read about it, and it really does come to life. Every castle has wonderful. a good bookshop. Oh, very good bookshop. And, and those were the best books I, I was able to find. Does that help, Jeff? Yes, that's, yeah, that's very interesting. All right. Good luck on your travels. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thelma in Surrey, British Columbia. Thelma, thanks for your call. Hi. Hi. Have you been to Wales and toured the castles? I have been to Wales and three times have been to Harlech Castle. Mm. And I just love sitting on the rock about maybe a quarter mile away looking at it and then walking through it. You almost have to envision what life must have been like in a castle such mm. as that. One of the trips I was there, I think a guide told us that the water, body of water, used to lap right up against the foot of the castle. When you look at it today, it's got to be at least half a mile away. Has your guests got any comments on it must have been silt or debris from the river that came down to build up that area? What happened, and this is, uh, is one of the most remarkable stories, is uh, just around 1300 there were a series of huge storms. If you go to the island of Anglesey, which is just a bit north, they've excavated one of the Welsh royal centres on Anglesey, and they have found that during a single incident, 
a yard, three feet of sand was deposited. In other words, you've got a lot of sand being shifted around, and the sand dunes at Harlech, which keeps the sea away from the castle, are deposited then. That's when they're formed. It's staggering to think about that. Because all of these castles, it was critical that they had access to the sea to be supplied. Thelma, what is it about Harlech that made you go back three times? I saw it the first time as a young person, and I took my two children many years later back, and my second husband back. I don't know, it's just to sit on that hill and yes. look at it and envision what may have gone on. Harlech, it's a, it's a special castle, H-A-R-L-E-C-H, right? Mm. When I was right. there last time, there was a harpist mm. sitting outside playing his harp, and it just added a beautiful part of the magic of that as I tried to take myself back, you know, six centuries. Right. Thanks, Thelma, for your call. You're Thank most you. welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Martin Delandovitz about the castles of Wales. Martin, anybody can pay their five pounds or whatever and go to see the castle, but not everybody can bring it to life. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, the life in these castles. They had plumbing. Yeah. I mean, they were probably in some ways more advanced than what we would imagine. Yes, they're very much so. I mean, the first thing to say is we, we spoke earlier, we said the Carnarvon Castle cost, you know, 90% of the annual income of Edward I. Edward I is a cultured man. The man who who lives in that castle, and the same is true for all castles, these are cultured people. They are wealthy people. And any idea that you have, they sit around wrapped up in animal skins, grunting and throwing bones over their shoulders, (laughs) forget it. Now, if you go to Chepstow Castle in South Wales, and you will see paint on plaster, which is nearly a 1,000 years old in Chepstow Castle. You go there, there's also paint on plaster, 700 years old. All walls are plastered, all walls are painted. Chepstow Castle again, just downriver, as it were, from Tinton Abbey. And Tinton Abbey people go there, beautiful, beautiful. And they say, look at the size of that west window. Gosh, you say, marvelous. Wonderful. Can you imagine the glass? Wonderful stained glass. And then you take them down to uh, the castle at Chepstow, and they say, all castles had glass in their windows, you know. And and people say, did they have glass then? Now, they're quite happy to believe you for the church up the road. Right. All castles did have glass in their windows. Okay. Plaster so and paint on the walls. Medieval churches, cathedrals of light, lanterns mm. of stained glass. They had uh, glass in the castles also. Running water in a running in water. The 13th century castle? Yeah, I mean, Carnarvon has running water. Dover? Dover has uh, yeah. running water supplies, yes. But I would imagine youth hostelers today eat better than kings ate. They eat well. The diet isn't as varied, and it depended on how wealthy you were. Edward I, he is obsessed with accounting for food in the royal household. That's one of his big things, where the royal household's cost in general, just as government is, is cutting costs a day. It was a, how can you say, a more meat-based diet if you were right at the top. Vegetables, there weren't as many. Of course, you don't realize how many vegetables are coming from overseas, if you think about it, in relatively so modern times. So there was an abundance of meat if you had the troops and the money. If you had the money. And it was a very meat-based diet. Otherwise, they, poorer people would eat more vegetables in a way, ironically, uh, eating better probably for their health than, than were the wealthy people, you know, those saturated fats. How did people have fun in the castles? Well, music played a great part, and we know about jesters. Uh, the siege of Carnarvon in the uh, English Civil War in the 1640s, one of the people who is given a, a rite of passage, you know, when the castle surrenders, is a Lancastrian and his performing bear. So that we know... So you'd had traveling entertainers, street yes. musicians, freak shows, yeah. people with dancing bears. And then, of course, there'd be... a. Uh, combat-based entertainment, sort of archery competitions and so on. King Edward spent a fortune on these castles. Mm. Did he have a sense of style that he would invest any extra yes, money in how yes. the castles would look? I mean, Carnarvon is a perfect example. You see, his architect is brought from Savoie, Switzerland, in essence. If you go to Chillon Castle on the shores of Lake Geneva, the same man that painted the walls of that castle painted the walls of Carnarvon Castle, you can still see his work behind the altar of the Chapel of St. Faith in Westminster Abbey. He painted Westminster Hall, too. So King Edward imported well-known, probably in- expensive artists architects, from Switzerland, interior, from London, de- yeah. to, to decorate his castles yes. in this bleak, godforsaken corner. Now, of the, he uh, paid the style. Because I remember, we were talking about Carnarvon Castle. Mm. It has uh, stylistic kind of stripes, different That's color right, of rock yeah. put into the actual mm. rockery of the castle. That's right. Bands of different colored stone. Well, that in itself is a huge cost to express style. You, you know castles. You've lived castles for a lifetime. When you tour a castle, what do you appreciate that the casual sightseer might not? All castles are the same. It's like a motor car. A motor car's got four wheels and it's got an engine. It's got seats. All castles are the same. Basically, all you have to know is a few things. Then 
What you go into a castle and look for then is how do they achieve this same thing differently? And that, to me, is a wonderful thing. There are details you can look for. You can amaze people, just learn a few tricks. And these are the things I look for, the hinges, which way do they open, the width of the doors, the thicknesses of the doors, uh, glazing grooves, plaster. You, so you've got to be a little bit of a, of a sleuth because all of the wood is gone, all of the windows yeah, are gone, all yeah. of the wall decor is gone, and you see a hole in the rocks that, that was where a sink might have been. Yes. And you see where a beam might have stuck. Mm. You can look at it at the inside of a tower and say, oh, that was three floors yes, on top of each other. that's right. You've got to learn certain things, but it's like any game. Once you've learned the basics of it, it then becomes, the whole thing begins to open up and it becomes more and more interesting to you. And that, that's the thing. There's a little bit of work at the beginning to understand them. Then you really enjoy things. The castle arc. Our quest is at an end. God be praised. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Martin Delandovitz. We're talking about castles and appreciating castles, specifically in Martin's home country, Wales. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Jay is calling in from Yakima, Washington. Jay, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Thank you. I understand you've been at Conway in North of Wales. Yes. My wife and I took a trip to the United Kingdom this summer. We went to England, Scotland, Wales, and then Ireland, and but. Of all the castles we saw, I particularly enjoyed the uh, the one at Conway. It seemed real authentic, and um, it was just fun visiting that castle. And you could see the purpose there on the little on the bay and overlooking the city of Conway. That I don't know if it was there when the castle was, but uh, you know what I like about that, Jay, is the city of Conway definitely was there when the castle, because it was built as a garrison town, so it was sort of integral to the castle. Isn't that right, Martin? Yes, it is. It is right. So you, you really can get a sense of, uh, I always think of it as like a green zone in, in Baghdad or something. You know, you can have the, the fort, then you've got to That's have a, a place. That's a good analogy. That's you've got a, to have a place yeah. where the troops will stay in the little economy. And uh, you have to have an airport. Well, they had a port, a protected port that the ships could come in from England and stock this, this green zone in, in the middle of Wales. Conway, C-O-N-W-Y. Great castle. That was very interesting. And yeah, you can see the beautiful bay there and you could... See how it functioned to protect the bay and the people in the village. It's, not, it's nice that you enjoyed that, Jay. I know, I know the castle quite well, and it's uh, a great castle and a great location. It, you look at it from any angle, it looks good, doesn't it? Hey, Jay, when I was uh, in Wales, I was overwhelmed by how many castles there were to choose from. Let's quiz Martin here just really quickly. Martin, uh, which castle had the biggest impact on Welsh history? Ooh, big question. <laughs> uh, all right, I'm from the north, I'm from Gwynedd. But uh, I will always go for Chepstow Castle. And Chepstow, Chepstow Castle. Chepstow. Chepstow. Near Bath, you can tour it in the south uh, yeah, on the yes, way to Cardiff. Yes. I tell you for why, because it has the first of many things. It has the oldest paint on plaster in Wales. It's the oldest stone-built castle in Britain, wow. William Fitzosborne's Hall. It has lovely 13th century, you know, the time of Carnarvon Castle paint on plaster. It's an object lesson in castle design, the first gateway protected by a rounded tower. It's a wonderful... Chepstow. C-H-E-P-S-T-O-W. Yeah. Yeah, I think now that you mention it, the, the castles in the north are pretty stony and vacant. Well, they're, they're one-dimensional. And yeah. don't get me wrong, they're, they're dramatic, they're fantastic. They're built by one king, one time, for one purpose. And that's their one-dimensionality. Now, Chepstow is built by many lords over many years, and so it has an evolutionary story. So, Jay, on your next trip to Wales, remember Chepstow in the south to complement Conway in the north. Yeah, we'd really like to go back to Wales. We enjoyed the country there, and nice. very friendly, and looking forward to seeing more castles there. Well, thanks for your call. Thank you. Thank you. Martin, a lot of us know castles in France, and they're really not these stony defensive fortresses, but they're palaces of wealthy nobility and financiers and so on. A lot of them were for the king when the king was on the road, and I was told that they're usually sort of dank and empty until the royal roadies arrived mm. in uh, anticipation of the king's arrival because yeah. they were always on the move. Yeah. In fact, the French word for furniture is mobile, right? Yeah. So, mobile, yes. so it had to be moved around. Yes. Uh, was that the same in England and Wales when we yeah, think about castles? Yeah, it, it, it was. You see, the medieval rulers are the center of justice and administration. Now, to dispense justice and administration, 
they have to move. So if you get lazy and just kind of live the good life, you're, you're going to lose your grip on power. You have to implement your power by being on the road. But it's not only that. You become more aware of what's going on. Now think this. The king moved in predictable circuits. Think of the queen today. She still goes to Sandringham for Christmas and so True. on. You know. yeah. But now they would go around dispensing justice and administration. The royal household, you couldn't stay in one place. There's too much food requirement. So anyway, you're moving around. Now, in time, the king and government becomes fixed in London. And so to replace that movement of the king, you developed circuit judges. And they replicate the royal circuits in the crown courts. Circuit judges. Is that where that comes from? Well, they actually move in the same way that the royal household is, so they can can dispense justice and administration. So to implement that power and that justice. King John, throughout his reign, on average, changed his place of residence once every two nights. If it's Tuesday, it must be Cardiff. Yeah. (laughs) I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I've been speaking with Martin Delandovitz. We're talking about castles of Wales. Martin, there's so much history that happened in these castles. Let's sort of cap this discussion with just your favorite historic moment as seen and witnessed from the rampart of a great Welsh castle. Well, well, I was uh, educated in Gwynedd, and in Gwynedd we were told the story. Uh, Edward I presents his infant child to the Welsh people. He promised the Welsh a prince born in Wales who spoke no English to rule them. Of course, it was his son born in Carnarvon Castle. And this was taught to me as fact in school. The truth about it is, is when that boy was born there, at Carnarvon, no two stones stood one on top of the other. If Edward I presented his baby anywhere, it was in the middle of a construction site in a particularly wet April of 1284. And what does that teach us? That teaches us this. Use your eyes when you go to a castle. Look at what's there rather than believing stories. Your eyes will give you a much more entertainment, knowledge and uh, honesty than will uh, any history you were taught in school. So enjoy the stories, but don't forget to look and use your head. Exactly. And enjoy the castles of Wales. Martin, thanks so much. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by me, Tim Tatton, and by Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. You can listen again to any week's edition of Travel with Rick Steves whenever you like. On your mobile device, look for the radio section of ricksteves.com behind the link that says Watch, Read, Listen. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, believing that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Offering a method of immersion and speech recognition to help you learn one of 30 languages. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.